Good morning, family. How are you today? Man, I'm so glad to see you. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep last night? How many of you just stayed up later last night? How many of you are depressed that this is the last year that we get to have one extra hour of sleep at night? Let's pray you'll be dismissed for a nap. No. Hey, I'm so glad to see you. I'm Josh. I'm one of the ministers. Listen, if I haven't had a chance to tell you, I I love you. I'm so glad that we get to be family and that we get to celebrate Jesus together and that we are family because of Jesus. Amen? Man, it's so good, so good. And if you're a guest, welcome to our family get-together today. I just want you to know, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. If you're just kicking the tires of faith today, we just want you to know that you're welcome and that every one of us was at one point in a similar place because we all have come through the process to be where we are today. So we just welcome you and are so glad to be together. For those of us joining online, welcome. Glad you're here. Wherever you're at, welcome. I do want to say, though, some of you joining us at home, you, you can't get here because of health or other responsibilities, and we get that. But listen, listen, if you are able to get here, we want to invite you to come. This place is full, but we have space for you because there's nothing quite like being together with the people of God. And I want to say this as well. If you are in a different city, we love that you join us online. But if there is a church in that city that you could belong to, that loves Jesus, that you could be blessing, we're going to ask you, join us if you want online. But you be a part of a Bible-believing church where you can invest in them, blessing them, and they blessing you. And by the way, do we all agree with that one, church? Absolutely. So, again, we love you all. Today... Man, second to last week in this teaching through the book of Revelation. I don't know about you, but for me it's been a huge blessing. And I I hope that it will be the shot in the arm that so many of us need just to be reminded these two most important words to the entire thing. God wins. If you don't remember anything else, God wins. And today we're going to see that. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. So it's really easy. You basically go to the maps and then come back a few pages. Chapter 19, we're coming to the very end. But I kind of need to address some before we even read a text here because um, I deal with a bit of a pet peeve. Maybe you can identify with this one. There will be days that maybe I want to go see a movie. And it's a movie that has like a really killer ending. One of those that it's got a twist or something you don't expect. And then you share with your friend that you're going to go see this movie. And before you can say, don't spoil it, what do they do? You will love how it ends. This guy does this, and you, it's amazing. You're like, well, now I don't have to take out a loan on my house for the ticket because I'm not going. Or some of you, it's not that. Maybe it's a game, and you have recorded it, and you're going to watch it afterward, and you've done your best not to watch social media. You have stayed away from all the people who will spoil it. And then some friend tells you the score, and you're like, why'd you spoil it? So I feel like, before we get into today's text, I need to just warn you, this is a big spoiler. If you don't want to know how everything ends and who wins, you're welcome to get up and leave. But if you want to know how the story ends, if you want rock-solid confidence that no matter what today brings, you know what the ultimate tomorrow brings, then let's look now together. At the final battle in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. We're going to read quite a bit of text, so bear with me. I saw heaven, the text begins. 
standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Quote, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Time out. Church. Who do you think the name of this writer may be? It's not a trick question. Okay, okay. The answer is Jesus. By the way, whenever the preacher asks you who we're talking about, a safe guess is Jesus. Even if you're wrong, everyone's like, oh, but it's a good name, right? So who do you think this writer is, church? Oh, it's Jesus Christ. And notice what he does. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. What does that even mean? Who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. So now you have this battle. The lines are being drawn. Jesus and his army, the beast, and the kings of the earth, those who oppose God and the will of God. But the beast, get this, was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And chapter 20 begins this way. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss. And holding in his hand a great chain, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But notice this. Eh, But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, 
who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire well if there are no questions we'll close with prayer no i still think we should pray before we get into this don't you let's bow thank you for spoiling the ending for us god and knowing that you win Give us ears to hear what we individually need to hear. Father, I pray that even as I share the words from this text, may you show things to me and reaffirm the things that Joshua needs to hear. And that we will not be listening for the person next to us, but we'll be listening for ourselves. Your handcrafted word to each of us. Give us eyes to see what's in the text. Holy Spirit, go before us. Show us what we need to see in here so that we may be the people you're calling us to be. And may the one thing we see, if nothing else, is that you win in the end. We pray this now in the name of the one who rides that white horse, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we're here. Finally to the last battle, the battle of Armageddon. And unlike the movie, no, Bruce Willis doesn't show up to save the day. In fact, there's a lot of confusion about this little word, Armageddon. Did you know that the word or the name Armageddon is only mentioned once in all of Scripture? It's here in Revelation 16, 16, where it says, Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And the first question everyone asks, is this a literal battle? Like, will it be a global conflict that converges in one spot? I mean, what's going on and as i've told you many times in our series i I don't know for sure but i think the text and particularly the name gives us a hint as to what is going on here you see that word armageddon in hebrew is not armageddon but it is actually harmageddon har like you're hawking something up so let's all together annoy the person in front of us and just say harmageddon on the count of three one two three Har-Megedon. Very good. Har means mountain, so it's actually mountain or Mount Megiddo. But if you go to the place, as some of us had the privilege of doing just two months ago, I, I had the privilege of taking a group and we were on top of Mount Megiddo, but it's not like a mountain mountain. It's rather, well, it's a tell. Look at this. A tell is not just a natural formed mountain. Rather, it is a mountain that is built from one civilization And another one building on top of its remains, and another one on top of its remains, over and over and over, and it is built up. And you need to know that Mount Megiddo, they've discovered roughly 20 different levels of civilization on this one place. 
thousands of years of human history, one built on top of the other. Now, this is a significant location. Next to it is a plain that was a place of great battles, epic conflicts between the people of God and the enemies of God. It was a significant strategic place and a rich place, and so it was an area that was constantly in fighting. What does this have to do with the battle of Armageddon? Here's what I would tell you. Do I think that this is a literal battle at the end of time? It could be, but I think we learn something much deeper, so I actually agree with those who say that the battle of Armageddon is actually symbolic of something much more. Let's go back to the layers here. Isn't it true that throughout human history, nations have fought for supremacy. And one nation comes on the scene and says, we are the stuff. There will never be another nation bigger, badder, or better than us. We are it. In fact, we are so good, we can do it without the help of God. And so we build ourselves up, but what happens given enough time? We come to dust and rubble, and so another nation builds on top of us. No, no, no. We are the stuff. We are so good, we can do it without God, and time passes, and they crumble. And another one says, no, we are. No, we are. No, we are. There is this constant war taking place of ideology and supremacy among the nations of the world declaring their sovereignty and independence from God. And it is in this place that we are told on the rubble of all things that God steps onto the scene and says it is in the place of your rebellious ambition where nothing is left but rubber that I will build the foundation of a kingdom that will never fail, that will never fall. This is the picture of God's kingdom coming. The battle is won. No other kingdom will take God's kingdom's place. It is the final battle. Christ wins. And did you see how it depicted Christ? He comes on the scene in chapter 19 like lightning. He's unmistakable and majestic, powerful incarnate. In fact, don't be fooled. The picture of Jesus here, this is no baby Jesus, meek and mild. This is no crucified Christ, beaten and bloodied. This is warrior Jesus. Strong enough to carry the weight of the world and powerful enough to displace all the evil in the world. And he steps onto the scene in glory. Did you hear the descriptive phrases? Because it's in this moment that he enters the scene and it just shows us that Jesus wins atop one nation and another all vying for power. The kingdom of God comes and says, I will never lose. He is the conquering king, king of kings and Lord of lords. And now he's described, did you see some of these images? He is the one riding on the, what was this, a white horse? White horses were the symbol of victory. After a great battle, you'd ride a white horse into the city. Go ahead, put that up. You'd come into the city on a white horse. But he's going out in battle on the horse. Why? Because victory is not in question. When Jesus shows up, the victory is assured. He comes out. With the name faithful and true. In other words, he is the one sent by God. He faithfully fulfilled the mission of God and told us the truth about who God is. He is faithful and true because he shows us. Next slide. He shows us who God is and did God's will. And then, did you get this weird little phrase? Did you notice the comment? He has a name. An unknown name. What's that all about? Does that remind anyone in here of that moment in Exodus in the Old Testament, chapter 3, where this old shepherd named Moses is just told by God to go to Pharaoh 
And he is to demand the liberation of the Israelites. And Moses, like any of us, would go, who do I say sent me? Do you you know what he's really saying? God, can I have your cell phone number? Like if I show up to Pharaoh and he kind of argues with me, can I dial you and just say, he wants to talk to you? And what does God say to Moses? He says, you can just tell him, I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I was who I was. It's the verb tense to be. In other words, God says, I'm God. You don't need some special name to do what I've told you to do, Moses. Now go and obey. But now, the unknown name of God has been revealed to us. Sometimes we forget the mercy of God came and removed all mystery of who God is when he stepped on the scene and said, I am, and the one who uttered that phrase in John chapter 8, verse 58, was Jesus himself. The name of God, the unknown name for civilization history, that name is Jesus. He is God. God's name is not Allah. God's name is not personal enlightenment. God's name is not the Buddha or any other systems of thought. Jesus is the name. And the reason it is unknown is because even in our day and age, Jesus is debated as King of kings and Lord of lords, isn't he? But he's given to you and me the clarity of knowing that the name of the God is Jesus Christ. And he is coming out with sword coming out of his mouth and iron scepter in hand to rule the nations. And a bloody robe? Now, okay, there have been a lot of speculation. What does this mean? I think Revelation gives us some hints. Throughout the book of Revelation, have you noticed that the believers, they overcome the enemy. They celebrate the victory through the blood of the what? Of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. Whose blood is this? See, sometimes, and I I, I like this, I just don't know that I agree with it. Some will say, oh, this, the bloodied robe. This symbolizes the blood of those martyrs who love Jesus and gave the ultimate sacrifice. And in their last moments, Jesus himself cradles their bloody bodies in his arms. I like that image. But here's Josh's thought. I agree with those who say, no, 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 this is the bloody robe of Jesus Christ himself. So you and I don't realize this isn't the first time Jesus wore this robe. There was another time that he was dressed in a robe And he now wears this robe and says, Beast, do you remember the time you tried to take me out last time? On that hill outside of Jerusalem. Oh yes, I wore the robe and they stripped it off me. They played dice for my robe. My hands and my feet were pierced. My side and my head gushing with blood. It poured out. It splattered. And now I pick up that robe splattered with my blood. I wear it to your face to show you what you thought was proof of my demise is now what I wear to prove that I am victorious. He is the king of kings, the conqueror of death, the liberator from the grave. He is God risen from the grave and he now shoves it in the face of the enemy and says, I'm back and I will never be defeated. This is what he's wearing. And do you notice who's coming along with him? His armies. That's you, that's me. And guess what? Did you notice the color of the horses we are riding? White. But wait a minute. Ha- quick question. Have you personally like gone out and fought Satan, you know, hand to hand? Have you picked a fight with the beast and won? No. 
And yet, you and I get to ride victory horses. Why? Because the Christian life has always been about receiving the victory of Jesus in our own lives. And we come out. But did you notice what we're wearing? <clears throat> what? Linen. Okay, listen. I wasn't in the army. I know you're like, yeah, no digs. Okay, I wasn't in the army. But I have watched the History Channel. And I kind of know what you're supposed to wear when you go to war. And it's not your Sunday best. Oh, yeah, and that's what that is. It's not just linen. It's not just white linen. It's clean. This is your mama telling you the night before, don't you wear that today. That's your Sunday clothes. Don't you get that dirty or your mama will make you pay, right? Anyone else grow up? Okay, so. And yet we're coming out in linen. Why? See, if Jesus is asking me for advice, I'm saying, Jesus, we need some artillery. We need some tanks. I at least want a bulletproof vest. Can I please have a bulletproof vest? He goes, no, no, you get linen because... I'm not bringing you out to fight. I'm bringing you out to witness victory. And we are dressed in white linens. Do you know why? If you go to some churches, you'll see something similar. They typically stand up here. They wear long robes. And what do they do while the guy like Sean Alex is leading? They sing. You and I are the chorus to Christ's victory. Ours is not to come in and save the day. It's simply to witness Jesus saving the world. And friend, if God is waiting for you and me to show up for victory, then we're in trouble. Can you imagine if God is going, I don't know if I can hold out much longer, but if I can, maybe Josh will show up and then we can take the beast. Man, we're in trouble if he's waiting on me. And he's, we're in trouble if we're waiting on you. We wear the linens because we are not there to fight. We are there to celebrate the victory of Jesus Christ. And how does he address the beast? I mean, is there some major battle? Is there some big fireworks? No, this is what happens. But the beast was captured. There's your battle of Armageddon. But where's the explosions? Where's the close calls? Where's the cliffhanger? There isn't one. It doesn't get a whole sentence even. It's get a, it gets a comma at the end. That's it. The beast is captured and that loud-mouthed little prophet is thrown out in the pit with him. Jesus is not sweating over what he's facing. Jesus comes out to collect a rabid dog. Did you notice Jesus is in the front of his armies? Where's the beast? He's hiding among his. He's out there like going, you guys go out there, you go out there. I'm big, I'm bad, I'm going to just sort of be back here. I'll, don't worry, I'm behind you. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, you, big fella, come on. That's it. That's the story. And the dragon, Satan himself, doesn't even get a face-to-face with Jesus. Jesus says to an angel, you go, grab a chain, tie that beast, throw him into the pit. And now we have peace, finally. We also have one of the most awkward, one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible. Mountains of books have been written to show what's going on after Jesus wins Armageddon. We now come to this thing called the thousand-year reign, the millennium. Churches have split over this one question. How will it end in the end? What's going to happen? There's a thousand years where Christ comes or doesn't come and the beast and all this. What's going on? So let me just give you a real quick. I'm going to show three things to you. There are basically three orthodox views that Christians, godly people, have disagreed on but come to three different main positions. We're not going to deep dive into here. If you want to ask questions to me later, we'll talk about it. But here they are. You have premillennial view, postmillennial view, and ah-millennial view. Let me just kind of walk through these. The pre-millennialists 
Try saying that ten times fast. They say that the world is getting progressively worse and worse and worse and worse until we come to an extraordinary period of tribulation where it's just a horrible time. And it will last for maybe a literal seven years or it's a season we don't know. But then after that, Jesus will come back, second return, and then he will literally reign on earth for a thousand years. Then there will be last judgment. That's what they believe. Now, some in this camp will also say that the church, you and I, will be raptured or taken up before the tribulation. By the way, did you know the word rapture is nowhere in the Bible? Just fun fact. Then you have post-millennialists. These are the people who say, no, the world doesn't get worse. It gets better because the church grows. More people come to faith until we come to this golden age. Maybe it's a literal thousand years. We don't know, but it'll be amazing. And then Jesus will come back once the world gets good enough, millennium, and then last judgment. The problem is this view lost a lot of credibility after the 20th century when we had two world wars and the threat of nuclear annihilation. And people go, well, maybe things aren't getting so much better. And then the third one, ah, millennialism. This is the one that says, no, 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 this is a figurative or a symbolic length of time, and it symbolizes that thousand years. It's a symbol for the time from when Christ resurrected from the grave until his second coming. The church grows, we're continuing, there's still battles, but this is the thousand year reign. You say, Josh, okay, so which one is it? My short answer is, I don't know. Now, there's one here that if you want, we'll sit down and I'll show you the one I think is more likely, and I can show you why in Scripture. But here's, here's the thing. It doesn't matter which one you believe to be true. Once we all get to heaven, not one of us is going to go, rats, I got it wrong. I misled so many people. Now, what are we going to do when we're in heaven, family? <laughs> God is awesome. I can't believe he did it this way. Oh, that's amazing. God wins. The point of the story is God wins. And you and I get the spoiler to say we get to be a part of the victory march. We get to be a part of the heavenly banquet. We get to be a part of the family of God forever and ever. No longer defined by our sin, but wearing pure robes, symbolizing how everything that we once feared and were worried about and all the garbage in our life has been taken from us by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Okay, that would have been a great time to say amen or something, right? It's a good day, amen? So here's here's what I want you to kind of maybe think about. Instead of pre-post-awe, maybe we all should instead be, well, pan-millennialists. The belief that in the end, it all pans out. (laughs) Because God wins. Then we have this one other weird little moment here that, again, what do you do with? You have this moment where we're told that the dragon is then released after a thousand years. Now, we're not told for how long or whatever or why. And again, mountains of books have been written on this topic. And you say, why? He just got thrown in the pit. Why would you let him out? And again, a lot of opinions. Let me give you mine. I agree with those who point out that sometimes we forget Satan is not eternal. He has not been around forever. He was created by God. Originally, an angel of worship who decided to rebel against God. And listen, I know he rebelled. He fought against God. He hates God. He hates the people of God. And he would do anything to destroy all that is good. I know all that. But we sometimes forget that he was once the beloved creation of God, and God loves what he creates. And so I wonder if this isn't just another moment where God is saying, I'll give you one more shot, one more chance, one more opportunity. And then what happens 
Well, the devil does what the devil does. He rebels. He gathers an army. And God, like my daddy when I was a little boy sometimes, I think looks at him and is like, boy, will you never learn? And so before the dragon can bite, before they can do anything, fire comes down, they're gone, story is over. It's as if God is once again reminding us that there is a limited time. He is working out all things for good, but the time is limited. Get off the Titanic, turn. If you want to follow the beast, this is not going to end well. But if you will turn to me, then there is life and joy and abundance. There is this picture that God is saying, come to me for after this moment now. The books are open. What what are the books? What are the books? Well, he tells us the books are where are written all of the things you and I have done in our lives. The good, the bad, the ugly, right? And, And hear me, this isn't God looking for all the little things like a bean counter saying, well, you're in the black here, you're in the red here. He simply loves you enough and is interested in you enough to take note of every moment of your life. And so we're told that then I saw a great white throne. This is God's throne. And him who was seated on it, and I saw the dead before the throne, meaning they will be judged. And it says this, another book, not just the books, but another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, if you grew up like a lot of us did in the South, you may have gone to churches where this was the verse that was always used at the end of the sermon, the evangelism moment, is your name in the book of life. And everyone started to get a little nervous. And if the preacher was really getting into it, he'd pull out his hanky and he'd sort of dab his forehead. And, is your name in the book of life? And you'd be like, I don't know. My feet are getting hot, though. And you get nervous. That's not what this is for. And this isn't what it's trying to do. Let, let me paint for you a picture. I think that moment in 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a sense of what's going on here when Paul marveling at the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of life through Christ, tells the church in Corinth, he says, when Jesus came back, he began to appear to people and give them life. He met them where they were, first to Peter, then to James, then to the 12 apostles, and then to 500 people all at once. And if you don't believe me, go and ask them. Many of them are still alive. And finally, after all that, Paul says, Jesus found me. It's like this. It's almost like Jesus comes back and he has a pen and he comes to Peter and he says, Peter, here. And Peter steps up to the book and he begins to write, this is where Jesus met me. I was sitting on the Sea of Galilee. I'd just denied him three times. I thought it was over, but he came to me And he reinstated me and gave me a second chance. That's where life began. And Peter writes his name, signs the book, and then he hands it to James. And James steps up and says, I grew up with Jesus. I was his half-brother. I didn't buy any of this. And then he resurrected and he appeared to me. And this is where he met me. And he hands it now to the others, the twelve, Matthew. He writes his name, and then Thomas, oh, doubting Thomas, writes his and says, I doubt no more. He appeared to me. I felt the side that was pierced. I felt the hands that were pierced. I saw my risen Savior, and this is where he came to me, and now I signed the book. And then he hands it finally to Paul, and Paul says, I was on the road to Damascus when he met me, and I signed my name in the book on that road that day. I met him when he saved me. 
And that pen has now been handed throughout the centuries from believer to believer, heart to heart, until it came to a little seven-year-old boy in a baptistry in Nashville, Tennessee. And I signed my name there. And it's been handed to you. And God's heart is not that you wonder or worry, but that you would know today that your name is in the book of life. And there are those in this room, you know what it's like. You have seen that God wins. You've seen the spoiler. And you trust him enough that he's worthy of all of your tomorrows and he's worthy of your today. And you have stepped up and said, this is where he found me. I am his forever. And so I'm asking you, have you signed your name? And I know that's a big question, and some of you here this morning are saying, Josh, that's too big. I need some time to process this, to think about it. I just, I just need more, just more time. But friend, you aren't guaranteed any more time. But you are given this time right here. And I'm not telling this to scare you or to worry you, not at all. I'm telling you this because it's just the truth. And that there is a God who is coming on his white horse and there will come a day when evil is over. That victory will be won. And the heart of King Jesus is that your name would be with him. That you'd say, no more with the beast. I'm with the one who brings life. If you have written your name, here's what you need to know. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heaven and hell, nothing. Angels or demons, nothing. Life or death, nothing. Good things, bad things, nothing. Marriage or divorce, nothing. Abandonment, no. Losing all that you have in a fire, no. Losing your job, losing your friends. The moments where you fall back and sin again, no. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is your name in the book of Jesus Christ? Is it in the book of life? And if it is not, then this morning you do not have to leave without the confidence. You don't have to leave without knowing. You don't have to leave wondering if Jesus loves you. And here's all it takes. Are you ready? Very simply, two things. You confess that you are a sinner, that you need a Savior, and not just someone to save you, but someone who can show you how to live. That's called a Lord. You confess that. And then you meet Jesus in the water. And in that moment, in ways I cannot explain, nor do I fully understand, your name is signed in the book. If your name is in the book, here's all I'm going to ask. Are you ready? You know how the story ends. Live like you do today. You ride on the white horse of victory. Your name is in the book. White linen and clean. And there's coming a day where you and I will sit at the great feast of God in our daddy's home. Singing the good news of Jesus. Is your name written in the book?